0: I'd like to introduce uh, Charlotte Cecil from the Developmental Risk and Resilience Unit from University College London, who will be presenting on Double Disadvantage, the Impact of Childhood Maltreatment and Community Violence on Adolescent Mental Health.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Um, So today I'd like to talk about the impact. Of two forms of adversity on young people's mental health and well-being and that is childhood maltreatment and community violence exposure childhood maltreatment is a major public health concern and a global challenge every year across the globe millions of children are exposed to abusive and neglectful experiences that are violating their human rights although it is difficult to estimate the true prevalence of maltreatment because many of these cases never come to light A recent study um, commissioned by the NSPCC based on more than 6,000 individuals across the UK found that up to one in five had experienced severe maltreatment while growing up, showing that it is a highly prevalent problem within this country as well. So what is the effect of maltreatment? Well, the most tragic and widely uh, publicized consequence of maltreatment is child death. In fact, the World Health Organization estimates that one in ten of all injury-related child fatalities across the world may be in fact attributable to child abuse and neglect. When maltreatment does not kill, it can severely compromise young people's development and increase risk for a range of different mental health and adjustment difficulties. Importantly, the effects of uh, maltreatment are not simply confined to childhood but rather can extend well into the adult years. A number of longitudinal studies have found, for example, that children who are maltreated as adults uh, tend to fare less well in a range of different domains, such as mental and physical health, uh, educational attainment, employment prospects, future earnings, all of which not only significantly impacts on young people's uh, individual chances of success, but also comes at a wider societal cost. Now another form of um, adversity that incurs heavy costs to both individuals and society is community violence. Community violence uh, encompasses a range of different acts that can vary in severity starting from chasing and threatening all the way to shooting, stabbings and even murders. And young people may be uh, exposed to such adversity in a range of different ways. They may hear about violence in their communities, they may see it directly or they may actually be the victims of such violence. Alarmingly, studies seem to agree that at least 50% of young people living in urban areas have had some level of community violence exposure. And studies seem to show that the rates of exposure to violence remain very constant across the years. In fact, violent communities have been compared to war zones in the sense that there's no foreseeable end to the violence taking place around these young people and this comes at a great cost. In fact, community violence exposure has been found to have a profound impact on young people's mental health and their behavior as well. It's important to note, however, that much of what is known about community violence at the moment comes from the U.S. and as such, little is known about its uh, scope and its impact within this country. So why am I talking about these two forms of adversity today? Well, both of them have been found to occur more frequently in areas that are characterized by more deprivation, more poverty, more crime, more unemployment, more overcrowding. So it's perhaps unsurprising to hear that both of them have been found to co-occur frequently with one another. Despite this, they have generally been examined separately, and as such, little is known about how they may impact on mental health, both independently and in combination as well. So these were the types of questions that I was interested uh, in in, uh, addressing. And uh, today I'm going to show you some data that comes from a larger study that I did as part of my doctoral research in collaboration with Kids' Company Charity and with my research lab at UCL called the Developmental Risk and Resilience Unit. So this study included more than 200 young people from deprived inner city areas of London, aged 60 to 24, both males and females. And we recruited them from a number of settings because we wished to include all young people who came from these deprived areas but who varied in their exposure to maltreatment and community violence. So half of our young people came from Kids' Company, were accessing services from Kids' Company, and the other half were recruited from a range of other settings such as inner city schools and through internet websites. Importantly, these two groups were very similar to one another in terms of their socio-demographic characteristics such as age, sex ethnicity but also in terms of this uh, level of neighborhood deprivation. So what we did is we asked each young person to fill in a number of questionnaires and first we asked them to report on their experiences of adversity. So we asked of of their experiences of child abuse and neglect while growing up and also the levels of community violence that they are currently being exposed to so in the past year. We then asked each young person, as well as someone who knew them well, such as a key worker within kids' company or a teacher within schools, to report on their current uh, mental health state. And we focused around three main areas that have a lot to do with um, emotional and behavioral dysregulation. We looked at internalizing difficulties, so things such as anxiety, depression, internalized feelings like this. Externalizing difficulties such as uh, aggression, conduct problems, antisocial behavior. And finally, trauma symptoms, especially post traumatic stress and dissociation, as these are common reactions to viol- violence exposure. All right, so I'd like to um, um, present to you the findings today in three main sections. First of all, I'd like to show you the levels of uh, exposure to adversity within this group, so levels of childhood maltreatment and community violence. Second of all, I'd like to show you the impact that these sorts of experiences are having on young people's mental health. And finally, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes looking more specifically at the influence of specific types of abuse and neglect on later mental health. Alright, so characterizing levels of exposure. I'm going to start with childhood maltreatment. And first of all, I'd like to show you the rates for any exposure. And what I mean by that is any level of maltreatment starting from minimal all the way to severe extreme. So when we look at any exposure, we find that more than 80% of young people from our kids' company group have had some level of childhood maltreatment while growing up. And we find that 56% of young people recruited from other settings have also had some level of childhood maltreatment while growing up. So we're seeing that the rates of maltreatment exposure are extremely high across both of these groups, but particularly so within kids' company clients. Now, when we break this figure down by individual forms of abuse and neglect, what we're finding is that, again, more kids' company youth have had uh, these elevated experiences across all forms of maltreatment. We also find that regardless of the group that we're looking at, emotional maltreatment seems to be the most prevalent, the most common form experienced, and sexual abuse the least common um, uh, form with, uh, of maltreatment experienced. <coughs> Now when we look at severe to extreme maltreatments, we're not looking at low levels, we're not looking at moderate levels, we're looking at the very top end of the severity spectrum. This is where we find a much wider gap between these groups. We find that 38% of kids company youth have had experiences of severe to extreme maltreatment while growing up compared to 8% within our comparison group. And this this gap is evident across all forms of abuse and neglect. So to give you an example, we find that within our kids' company group, one in four have experienced severe to extreme emotional maltreatment, such as being frequently told hurtful, harmful, humiliating things. We find that one in five have experienced severe to extreme physical abuse, such as frequently being beaten up so hard that it was noticed by someone like a teacher or neighbor. We find that 1 in 10 have experienced severe to extreme sexual abuse, such as frequently being told to watch or do sexual things while growing up. So these are rates that are considerably higher than youth in other settings. Okay, so what about community violence exposure? Well, when we look at, again, any exposure, so minimal all the way to extreme, what we find is almost everyone, everyone in our project, has had some level of community violence exposure in the past year. And when we break this down by individual modes of exposure, so hearing about violence, witnessing it, directly experiencing it, what we find is what's similar between these groups are the rates of hearing about violence. And that's probably because everyone in in this project came from more deprived inner city areas of London where more violence is probably happening, so more violence is also being heard about. Uh, we also notice that the rates of witnessing and victimization are very high across uh, both groups but particularly so again amongst kids company youth. Now when we look at severe acts of community violence, again this is where we find a huge gap between our groups. So th- I'm going to show you three key statistics that I think really exemplify this. First of all, we find that amongst kids company youth, we f- almost half of them report having seen someone being shot or stabbed in their community in the past year alone. We find that although these may not reflect all independent events, one in four of them report having seen someone being killed in their community and one in ten report having been shot or stabbed themselves in the past year alone. So these are very alarming figures within this group. Alright, so we've been looking at the severity of exposure, but another element that's really important to consider is the number of different types of exposures. So I'm going to show you the rates of single versus multi-type exposure. If we look at anyone in our sample who has had some level of childhood maltreatment while growing up, we find that almost three out of four of them report having experienced multiple forms of abuse and neglect while growing up, rather than single forms. So within maltreated youth, polyvictimization or multi-type exposure is very common. We find a very similar story when we look at community violence exposure. So out of anyone, everyone in our sample who has had experience of community violence exposure, more than 80% of them report having had a combination of hearing about, witnessing, or being victimized in the community and less than one in five report having had only one of these forms of uh, adversity in the community in the past year. All right. so we've been looking at maltreatment and community violence separately but one big question is how much do these actually co-occur? How much do they overlap? Now if you look at this circle and you imagine that it includes anyone in our our sample who has had experience of maltreatment, we find that 97% of them also report having been exposed to community violence. So what we're seeing here is that maltreated youth typically seem to experience a double disadvantage. All right, so in summary, we find that, first of all, there are alarming rates of exposure to violence, both within the home and within the community, in this sample of vulnerable inner-city youth. We also find that um, amongst affected youth, so youth who have been exposed to violence, multi type exposure, bully victimization, appears to be rather the norm rather than the exception. Finally, we find that maltreatment and community violence exposure frequently co occur with one another. In particular, youth who have been maltreated are highly likely to also be exposed to violence in the community. All right, so. Um, What is the impact of these sorts of experiences on young people's mental health? Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, up until this point, studies have generally focused on maltreatment or community violence exposure without accounting for this overlap between them. And this is a problem for two main reasons. First of all, if we look at them separately, how can we be sure that the effects we attribute to one may not actually be due to the other? And second of all, if we look at them separately, how do we know how their effects combine with one another? So in this section, I just want to address briefly two main questions. First of all, what are their independent effects? So what are the effects of one when we remove any effects that may be due to the other? And second of all, what happens to young people when they experience this double disadvantage? How do these uh, uh, um, adversities combine with one another? All right, so if we look at childhood maltreatment, over and above any effects that may be due to community violence exposure, we find that it has a highly detrimental impact across the board of uh, domains of mental health function. So what we're finding is that more severe childhood maltreatment increases the risk of internalizing difficulties, of externalizing difficulties, and of trauma symptoms. So it's having a global effect on young people's functioning. And importantly, we find the same exact picture when we look at mental health as reported by the young people themselves and mental health as reported by someone who knows them well. So we know that these are robust findings. Now, when we look at the effects of community violence exposure over and above anything that may be due to childhood maltreatment, we find that it is also an important independent risk factor for poor mental health. But the situation is a bit different. We find that, first of all, the effects are somewhat weaker than childhood maltreatment, although still very important. We also find that the effects of community violence exposure seem to be more restricted to certain areas of functioning, and not others. So, community violence exposure seems to be a particularly important risk factor for young people's trauma symptoms, such as post-traumatic stress, and also an important risk factor. For uh, increased externalizing difficulties, such as increased aggression, increased antisocial behavior, which is very likely also to reflect possibly a strategy, an adaptive strategy that young people are taking in order to ensure their own protection whilst living in a violent community. But these processes will need to be explored further in future, and again, these findings are the same when we look at self reports and when we look at reports by key, uh, key workers and teachers. Alright, so how do these effects combine with one another? Um, well, what we find is that childhood maltreatment and community violence exposure combine in an additive way. And what that means is that young people who get this double disadvantage also get a double whammy in terms of the impact that these experiences are having on their mental health because the, um, the effects of one are, get it, are getting added onto to the effects of the other. So experiencing either one is bad enough, but experiencing both results in the greatest level of maladjustment and uh, mental health difficulties. So in summary, two main points from this section. First of all, both maltreatment and community violence exposure are key developmental risk factors that have serious consequences (coughs) for mental health. Second. Youth who experience a double disadvantage, so experience both of these forms of adversity, are at particularly high risk of more serious mental health difficulties. All right, so in this final section, I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes showing you some very preliminary analysis that we've been conducting recently, looking at the influence of individual maltreatment types. Now, we were interested in looking at whether distinct forms of abuse and neglect during childhood impact later mental health in a similar way or in a different way? So are their effects similar or are they different? And we find two main things. We find that first of all, all maltreatment types are harmful. All of them have a negative impact on mental health. So there's something that is shared between different forms of maltreatment, something that is common to all of them that seems to be driving this impact on mental health. And what we hypothesize this may be reflecting is the fact that feeling unsafe and feeling vulnerable may be a universal consequence of maltreatment regardless of whether it is abuse or neglect and that this in turn can have a profound impact on the way young people develop and on their later mental health. We also find however that emotional abuse, out of all of the maltreatment types, emotional abuse had something extra. It was driving an extra impact. It was powerfully predicting young people's later levels of anxiety and depression over and above anything that could be accounted for by all the other forms of maltreatment. So there's something unique, there's something more distinctive about emotional abuse. And although unfortunately the measure that we've used, was, uh, we were not able to identify the specific feature that is driving this X-ray effect, we hypothesize that what this may be due to is the fact that emotional abuse, more than any other form of adversity, sends a very clear message to children and young people that they may be unloved and unsupported. So, for example, prolonged denigration of a parent towards a child may end up in the child internalizing this parental criticism and uh, um, uh, and ultimately ultimately believing that they are not worthy of love and support. And this in turn can really have a huge impact on the way they see themselves on their own self-esteem and thus increase risk for later internalizing problems. Alright, so in conclusion, I'd like to just um, uh, look at three key, uh, give you an overview of three key findings from this study. First of all, inner city youth are highly vulnerable to violence exposure, both within the home and within um, the community. And amongst uh, young people who have been affected by violence, polyvictimization or multi-type exposure is often the norm rather than the exception. We also find that maltreatment and community violence exposure are both key developmental risk factors for poor mental health. Maltreatment has a global, generic detrimental effect, and community violence has more specific effects on young people's um, post-traumatic stress and externalizing difficulties. We also find that young people who get this double disadvantage get a double whammy in terms of the impact on their (coughs) mental health. Finally, although all forms of maltreatment are harmful, emotional abuse has something extra in explaining young young people's feelings of depression and anxiety and we believe that this is the fact that emotionally abused children in particular are made to feel unloved and unsupported and that this may be one of the most toxic outcomes of maltreatment for young people's mental health and behavior. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that we as a society need to think about how we are protecting um, and supporting vulnerable inner city youth. And I I hope that today the audience and also the panel will have some ideas as to what we can do uh, to take collective action against violence exposure. But I'd like to bring three main areas to the table today. And these are, first of all, awareness. How can we increase visibility amongst politicians? practitioners, the wider public, about the levels of violence that are happening in urban deprived areas of London and the type of impact that these kinds of experiences are having on the young people, on their mental health and on their behavior. Second of all, prevention. How can we reach at-risk families and communities early on so as to try to stop the violence from happening in the first place and this is very important because um, any preventive action is likely to be more effective, less costly on the long run than the implementation of any remedial intervention later on. Finally, improving access to effective interventions. All too often, the young people who are the most vulnerable, the most in need of services, are cut out or isolated from these services. So we need to think about how we can make it easy enough for these young people to access effective interventions, for example, by allowing them to self-refer to services at a street level. And this is ultimately extremely important because it's about facilitating the effective delivery of love, care, and support to young people so as to enable them to thrive in spite of their adversities and to reach their individual potential. Thank you very much. I'd like to just thank Kids Company for enabling this research and all of my collaborators on this project. And thank you to all of the young people, (coughs) teachers, key workers, and the staff members at the Urban Academy who have taken part in this research. Thank you.
0: Um, and now I'd like to kick off our next roundtable: uh, Toxic Neighborhoods, Broken Childhoods. And I'd like to invite the chair, Patrick Butler, the Society Health and Education Policy Editor of The Guardian uh, to the podium.
2: Thank you. And um, thank you for inviting me to uh, the conference. Um, and for this session, um, Well, about five or six years ago, I remember um, David Cameron making uh, a speech um, in which he bravely spoke of the importance of uh, of love for disadvantaged and troubled children when supporting them. And, of course, we never remember that speech very much, but we do remember the rejoinder which was, uh, ah, just hug a hoodie and um, I think that's something that always sticks in my mind about how cynical we can be in the media and how nasty politics can be. Um, Because I thought he was making a brave point. In fact, at the time, I wrote a little article in Society Guardian praising him, which I have to say does not happen very often. Um, And I do wonder now what progress we have made on that particular uh, Cameron agenda. Anyway, uh, on to uh, this afternoon... Uh, this session uh, is entitled to- uh, neighbor- uh, "Toxic Neighbourhoods, Broken Childhoods," and uh, we are going to have a roundtable discussion, which I will chair. Um, I would like to invite uh, to the stage Professor Essie Vidding, uh, Development Risk and Resilience Unit at UCL, um, Sharon Hodgson. Sharon Hodgson, um, who is Labour MP and Shadow Minister for Education. And Max <laughs> Bell, who is the Borough Commander um, in Lambeth Metropolitan. <laughs> Um, I think to kick off with, I was going to ask each of our panelists just to make a, a very short um, contribution, really, uh, to uh, this agenda. Then we'll have a bit of a discussion, and we'll open um, open it up to you, the audience, to ask questions. Um, Essie, I think um, if you could kick off, maybe, and talk to us a bit about why you think uh, this is so important, this research.
3: Uh, well, I think um, as Charlotte has documented, um, these youth are really facing extreme uh, violence both at home and neighborhoods. And as a fairly middle class parent, you sort of shudder to imagine the kind of environment where these children grow up in. So I think the first thing that I would like to see awareness sort of increased in and, and empathy in the society increased in is the kind of circumstances <laughs> these children grow up in um and i would like people to think why these children ought not to have a right to grow up in a safe warm happy environment so i think that there's a real challenge to society to really empathize and think about these children i think this challenge might be particularly large to politicians who've grown up in very privileged backgrounds uh neuroscience doesn't only tell us about the brains of children who've been maltreated it tells us also Brains about typical people when they empathize. We find it hard to, harder to engage the empathic regions when we think about people who are not like us. So I would like to challenge some of these politicians to maybe go and experience the environments with, where these children are and talk to these children and then have a rethink about some of the policies that they're implementing.
2: Um, mask if I could. Introduce you now. Obviously, you're on the front line, and you 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 see this, and you're aware of this. Perhaps you could talk a bit about uh, your experience.
4: Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much, Camilla, for inviting me here today. Um, I, I suppose people quite often would think that a police officer with more than 28 years uh, policing of London might be, become a bit cynical. It's in really interesting that, that that annoys me more than anything else. I think about. About what I do because I see everything that Charlotte has talked about on a day to day basis. Um, that is absolutely the reality of the streets of, of Lambeth and various other boroughs, not only in London but around the country. And I think it is so important that we start tackling the real issues that underlie this. I as a police officer, my, my police officers who, who are on that front line far more than me, I've got to say, um, you know, they are dealing with the tip of the iceberg of this problem. Um, this is not a, a policing solution to these issues, and it, it requires very much a joined-up approach. And that's why, a, I'm really pleased to be here, and, and b, I'm really pleased to be, to be associated with and working with, with Camilla and Kid's Company, who I've got to say I first became aware of back in the late 90s when I was working in Peckham at the time, and it was um, following the murder of Damolola Taylor that I really became aware of the work that Kids' Company were doing with some of the, the most problematic and, and challenged young people in that particular area at that particular time. and Things have really moved on since then. But one thing that, that hasn't changed is just the, the, the desire to tackle the, the underlying root causes of, of these problems, and I'm absolutely fundamentally behind you on that.
2: Before we go on, Matt, could you just talk a little about the types of violence here that we're talking about? Um, you know, we talk about emotional abuse and we talk about other kinds of violence, violence in the community. What specifically are we talking about here?
4: I, I think on a day-to-day basis, myself and my officers become very much aware of um, the, 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 the ultimate outcomes of some of those underlying abuse. I think we... We perhaps see less of that emotional abuse because it's going on behind closed doors, it's going on within families and within within close relationships. What we tend to see is the most extreme outcomes of that. And and when I was sitting um, listening to Charlotte, I I, I just went back to um, a period last year when following a, a particularly violent stabbing that occurred on a bus in a public place in the middle of an afternoon where a 15 year old young man had stabbed another one 17 times. And he was arrested really quickly and he was um, in custody and I went to see him because I was reviewing his detention. And I walked into this room where he was with an appropriate adult because he didn't have a family member with him. And um, I was faced by um, a young man who was probably weighed about eight stone, was about five foot, three inches tall Looked completely and utterly the opposite of perhaps what you would think when you've heard a, about somebody who's, who's carried out such a brutal and violent attack. Uh, and it it's kind of brings it home to, to me that you know that what journey had that young man been on in his life that meant he could then commit an act. And it was a, it was a pretty um, it wasn't premeditated. It was something that happened as a result of a beef that occurred in the street. And that really brings home to me that the kind of background, the kind of life, the kind of trauma that that particular individual must have suffered that could mean that, that he could have carried out that type of offence. And he was a really you know, quiet, uh, timid, in that situation, individual. And that just brings home there are, no, um, there are no givens in this world. And, and you know equally, that just is the reality, the touching point for me, that... Know, there, there is something that can be done for each and every one of these individuals.
2: Uh, Sharon, could I
4: bring you in here for your uh,
2: observations? And uh, uh, clearly, you, I, mean, I think often we think of Kids Company as being very London focused, but you're from the northeast of England.
5: I am, I am, but I, f- I first met Camilla when I served on the um, Children, Schools and Families Select Committee, I think it was probably about five years ago now, and we were doing an investigation into. Um, Inter- looked after children I think it was and um, Kimela gave evidence and What what really struck me was the amount of money we spent on children once they hit your doors and um the, the youth justice system and the criminal justice system and it, how much money gets thrown at them then I had no idea how costly places in um, secure children's homes were and um, you know uh, Young offenders institutes and places like that, and even you know, a prison places 40,000, but you can look at 150,000 for a secure children's home. I just thought before I was an MP, I used to work for an early intervention charity. That worked with children at risk, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds showing those early signs of disaffection. And I used to do the funding bids for trying to get £5,000 from here and £10,000 from there. And, you know, and that was part of my route into politics. But then to see the sums of money that are thrown on them when society's failed them and when we haven't helped them, I just thought this is madness. And I met with Camilla and I wanted to understand more because Camilla, you know, I'd started reading some of the, the stuff. That we now, you know, are all more aware of, but you know, no, hardly anybody was aware of it five, six years ago. And I'm, I think the awareness, which I know, Charlotte, it's number one on your list, increase awareness. But I think the fact that there are this many people now, sort of aware and talking about this, is totally down to Camilla and the work that she's done getting this out there. But. I, I was first, you know, when she was first telling me about it, and about the effect of neglect and maltreatment on the on the brain, and the you know the the, the acid effect on the co- you know the cortisol and how it all went. I was thinking, why don't why don't we know about this? How don't no more people know about this? This is unbelievable. And it was that around that time when you know um, you mentioned Patrick when. The uh, Cameron first, you know, mentioned the hooker hoodie and I sort of, you know, then felt guilty that my party was sort of dissing that because I started to understand more where that phrase had come from and you know and, and the the political nonsense that there can be when you all try to to point score but but it sent me on a journey and a journey i'm still very much on to find out more about this and i'm now absolutely an evangelist and a, a cheerleader for this work you know we've got to be talking more about prevention more and more and more as well as good quality early intervention and it's, it's exactly the one two three that Charlotte's come up with increase awareness first of all we've all got to understand more about this and believe it and want to do something about it then we've got to invest in prevention you know to stop it happening and then for the children where it still happened to them we've got to have improved access to better quality interventions, and um, you know, this will all be part of that, but if I can just plug one all-party group, you'll have probably all heard of George Hoskins, and the Wave Trust, I met him after I met Camilla when I was going on this journey, and he's absolutely convinced around the to 3 you know, the early brain development, you know, and if Camilla deals with the, the the latter side of it when it's all went wrong but if we can really concentrate on the prevention the first thousand and one one days and George has helped to set up an all-party group in parliament with um, Frank Field and Angela um, um, oh gosh I forgotten their surname, Ledson. Ledson yes sorry, and Andrea, Andrea that's why Angela didn't work, Andrea Ledson, um and a number of other um, MPs, cross party, it's a totally cross party group to campaign for the first thousand and one days and this work will so feed into it and I think um, the, some of the presenters who presented at this um, seminar today would be good to come and present to the all party group too you know, make that more, that this information more um, available to more MPs who still probably won't be where we are on this subject.
2: Now, for someone like like me who's, who's way behind the curve on all this, the way that we've, uh, you know, conventionally had to try and understand issues like this of, 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 of violence and, um, and the abuse that can stem from that and uh, the disadvantage that can stem from that we tend to look at it kind of sociologically so we look at you know poverty uh, we look at educational attainment we look at the terrible environment that they, they might have to live in um, but we've never really looked at the neuroscience side and I'm, I'm wondering what difference does the or what particular yes. insights does the neuroscience add to that 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 traditional analysis
6: yeah
3: I think um, the neuroscience gives you a sort of a window on how the environment can get under your skin, if you like. Um, And what our work, Eamon McCrory, who directs the unit with me, is sitting there. He's just come in. He's been on induction with students today, so he only managed to come in. He should really be sitting on the panel rather than me. Uh, But the work that uh, he's been leading in our unit has looked at the impact of maltreatment on uh, brain function and brain structure. And what we see... Are differences, but we view those differences as adaptation rather than uh, brain damage. So, what these children, for instance, show is when we give them pictures of angry faces in the scanner and we look at their brain reactivity to those angry faces, whether we present them for a long time or very fast so that they don't consciously see them. Uh, We see increased activation in a brain area called amygdala, which is a very old, preserved brain structure that is there to detect things that are important to pay attention to in the environment. And the way we interpret the data is that the children who grow up in these abusive environments have to be on a hyper alert for the danger that might be around them. And that alert is adaptive for those environments because it will probably help them to escape the danger but it will ill prepare them for functioning in a normal society where you shouldn't be constantly on a lookout for somebody possibly threatening you. So they kind of come to interpret even neutral, exp- and this is probably what something that you see in your policing work, This kind of what we typical people who haven't grown up in those sorts of environments would s- see as overreaction to somebody dissing you or pumping into you. But for those children, it's probably a very real reaction to repeated trauma that those sorts of facial expressions have signaled to them. So the question for us now is, okay, we've documented that there's this difference. What happens in long term? So Eamon has just uh, got a new grant to look at these children longitudinally. So we're going to see when they get social support, do we see this sort of brain reaction normalizing? Do we see some sort of compensatory mechanisms into place so if they can't help the overreactivity, reactivity can they help by some other means dampen it down so I think the neuroscience can give you a bit of a window as to what might be the best strategies you can use with the children the other thing I think that will be important to come out of this work is uh, to really understand the windows of malleability in the development so although the First three years, I would completely agree, are incredibly important. A lot of brain development happens during the first three years. We also now know that the brain development is not fixed. There are big changes that happen during adolescence, these continue until early adulthood. There are also changes that happen during adulthood and, and old age. So I think that what we want to really find out is these windows of opportunity that then the more social therapeutic interventions could harness so you can think okay well if somebody is very overreactive and they don't really have a lot of self-control to regulate can we maybe do some sort of attentional bias training that will teach these people implicitly that that sort of phase is not a bad phase and can we get them to then eventually dampen down this sort of reactivity and I think that's where the neuroscience gives you a bit of a handle on on some mechanisms and, and help us understand the degree to which we can sort of Mold uh, these adaptations more back to the normal.
2: And, okay, and if you like. with, with, with the children that you studied, it, are there any? Were they all from a certain class background or income background, and, or did it vary depending on the stability of their family or the income of their family? Um, you know, if you're middle class, are you better able to avoid these um, the, the, these images and experiences? Yes.
3: So. Whilst these sorts of experiences no doubt happen at every strata of society, they do tend to be more common in in deprived neighbourhoods and we have recruited exclusively from social services so we can have documented histories of maltreatment. So in effect we have a bit of a, if you like, biased recruitment because Mm -hmm. we've uh, we've wanted to have The ability to document formally that there is a noted maltreatment experience in the brain imaging studies that we've done Um, and the kind of questions you ask is of course interesting you know to what extent various uh, other societal factors might influence these sorts of adaptations and we just simply don't know as of yet.
2: Another thing I was was curious about in uh, in your research was to what extent do you are you separating violence happening externally either to them or witnessing actual violence to mediated violence whether it's seeing pornography or violent computer games and so on do you are there different kinds of violence that we that make a difference
3: so in the studies that we have been doing in the community and in the scanner we have just we've documented uh, violence that has they have either witnessed or has happened to them um, or they've witnessed in the community in terms of the media um, exposure or kind of video games or something like that that's not something um, we have we have looked at. I mean, there are some other people who have looked at those things and this, the studies vary in their degree of inference because some of them don't control for all these real-life violent experiences that are happening to these sorts of children as well. So, I think the jury's a bit out there.
2: Yeah. Um, now, one um, of the, uh, the, the key next questions is, well, what do we do with this, um, uh, with this analysis? Now, Sharon, you touched earlier on early intervention and, and perhaps we need to Think again about how, what services provide, we provide, how we provide them, where we put the investment in. What thoughts do you have about the services and how we provide, how they should be affected by this insight?
5: One of the, the proudest achievements of the, the last Labour government, and I don't want to get sort of all us and them all the time, what, was um, Sure Start. It, sure Start didn't exist, but a lot of um, everything you know research wise around children's development and closing the gap told us that we needed something like sure start so we rolled it out and it was the phase, phase one centers with it to the most deprived areas to help the most vulnerable children and if anybody is read or knows Naomi Eisenstadt um, she wanted it to be fully evaluated in a slow rollout and people like Yvette Cooper and Margaret Hodge, you know, the wonderful Margaret Hodge, sort of said no, 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 and Tessa Jowell said no, this is working, we can see it's working, the, all the anecdotal evidence we're picking up is that this is going to make a huge difference to children's lives, so they rolled it out threw money at it, That's you know, where some, you know, the money that we wasted, we didn't waste it all, uh, we didn't waste any in my opinion, we spent it on things like schools, hospitals and Sure Start. Um, so we rolled out, we had 3,500 um, Sure Start centres, we rolled out and made it universal and that was the phase three so that this would exist because even in you know, lovely places like Somerset where I, I, I visited recently and I always use this as an example, there is huge Um, deprivation, pockets of real, you know, terrible deprivation. There is in some of the most beautiful parts of the country, the leafy parts where you would just love to live if you could afford to, there are also pockets of real poverty and deprivation. So it was acknowledged that this couldn't just be something that was in the inner cities where everybody understands where the poverty is. It had to be rolled out because everyone had to have access to it. And also because things such as postnatal depression and domestic violence are no sort of um, in selector of, of income or background they exist across all social spectrums that those mums um, also needed to have somewhere they could go and that this shouldn't just be a service that was for the poor because services for the poor often become poor services this had to be something that was universal everybody could access for all the social mobility reasons and all of the social cohesion reasons so we rolled it out and this is a political part Cameron promised before the election, as Clegg did, that it would be safe in their hands, that Sure Start would be protected. Well, in case you haven't already noticed, unless you actually use these centres, there are now 565 fewer children's centres. Some of the ones that are still there have been hollowed out. The budget has been halved. Over the term of this parliament, the budget used to be three billion a year, it's now one and a half billion a year. And this was the early intervention, the prevention work that I talk about that was taking place that we all believed was necessary. Now, you know, perhaps they were overfunded a little bit. know everybody and they could have maybe had 10 20 percent cut but they've had a 50 percent cut and we will in time see the um, you know the negative aspects of that this was something that was just starting to roll out and we could have used not saying it was perfect you know they still weren't reaching all the children outreach wasn't as good as it could be people were self-selecting and using it and you know everybody was saying "Oh, it was just the middle classes who was using it well that could have been fixed by getting out using more sort of peer-to-peer Volunteers. Some centres were starting to do that to yeah. great effect. Now, you yeah. know, that's just one example. I could go on and on and on about what's went okay, on. Okay. Well,
2: I, uh, I'm going to ask Matt. Um, obviously, you're a, a, in the police. You're at the most of the time. You're at the acute response end of public services. Um, what would these insights? What have they led you to think about how you might do policing differently, or? Um, whether you might think, well, maybe we shouldn't be putting so much money into this aspect of policing. Maybe we should be putting it into another service altogether.
4: Yeah, interesting. I'm not going to get into budgets because I'll get in serious trouble, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, I'm not going to get into politics either, otherwise I'll talk all afternoon. I think a couple of interesting, couple of interesting bits that really came out of those last, last two um, inputs. One is around... Um, you know, we talked about that hyper-awareness that, that these young people have and they live that way and you can see it in their faces. Absolutely you can. And with that comes a, a perpetual fear as well. They are living in fear the whole time. And um, you know, for me, what, what can we do to remove some of that fear and then remove that barrier that that fear creates? And, and from, again, for me and from experience, that's about finding some neutral ground. So whether that's neutral ground like a location like Kids' Company or schools. In, in parts of London, the schools are the neutral ground where you get members of different gangs who are in the same classes who who cohabit quite happily but wouldn't be on the street together. So once you ta- start to understand that, you can understand where you can actually link in and have some effect with, with those particularly young people. And, and, and equally, if they won't come to us as organisations, we need to go to them. We, we recently tried to... Uh, run. Well, we did run. A, um, a, some of you will have heard of the Boston ceasefire model, the gang's calling piece. It's been, it's been used internationally. It's been used in Scotland and it's been used in London as well. And we recently held one in, L- in Lambeth and it wasn't as successful as we, we hoped it would be. And what we found from that experience was that actually you know, there's some of these young people, they don't want to come to us because they're fearful of coming out of their own particular areas. So what we will do is go to them. You know, we will go and carry out that kind of supportive approach because it is a supportive approach, albeit hard-hitting. But we'll look to do that where they feel comfortable, where their fear is down and therefore when, when perhaps they are more susceptible to having and beginning a relationship. And, and I, I, I just want to touch on the second thing for me, which is around the opportunities that come up in life to, to, to have that change and again speaking with parents of gang members and also with gang members over the last few years, there are, there are periods in their lives when they are absolutely never going to deviate from what they are currently doing. Um, no matter what we try and do, our partners try to do, how together we, we work. But there are also, there are key times in their lives when they are susceptible, most susceptible to change and it's about how do we identify that effectively and then have the right change on the table at that time to say, okay, come and and get this job. I've got a colleague with me, Jack, who who I I won't mind mentioning. He he works uh, very closely with the Wave Trust as well as director of the Wave Trust. Um, So he, he, um, uh, again, has, has got me quite excited in some of their work as well. But fundamentally, we've been running some job fairs on the Stockwell Park estate now for the last year and a bit. And uh, our next one is next week. And there are 15 gang members invited to that. And we have, over the course of the last year, found jobs for a number of serious violent, ex-violent gang members who are seeking at that time in their life either an education course, a development opportunity or a job. Now, we can waste our time it's never a wasted time. We can try and fail at certain times, but we've got to keep trying because we will find those individuals at the right time in their life, and we will be able to offer them a way out. And we all know, because we've all seen it, that there are times in, in, in the lives of you know, potentially quite violent young criminals where they just want to get out of it, and, and they are right, and they are at the right time for that. So, so that's, that's where I think we can make a, a difference, and we can make a difference in that, that whole... When you look at increasing awareness, I'm in a a fantastic position as a police officer because people really don't expect to hear me talking about these sorts of things in this type of way because we we sort of see police officers speaking on the television and, and they're invariably there just to talk about one particular thing. But what you will find and what I find is that an awful lot of police officers are really passionate about trying to prevent some of the problems that that eventually we deal with, and we actually see the benefit of that preventative work and and, improving access to interventions is is key, and we do all of those three things uh, because we we see the benefit of it. Um, And invariably, we do it best working in partnership, that's with the community, with organisations, with our statutory partners as well, and we all tend to pull together uh, to try and deliver some of those those types of, of outcomes.
2: But uh, Essie, isn't, isn't by the time that they're, they're teenagers, isn't that a bit late? I mean, the implication of what you're saying is that the wiring starts to go wrong uh, at a very early age as a result of this. So, you know, at what, what, what point do you think the interventions are coming in a child's life? And and how extreme are those interventions?
3: I think it's, I mean, it's always extremely complex. It's a sort of complex balance between how motivated somebody is. If they are motivated, they can work hard at something. Brain is very, very malleable. And we know that there's a, there's a sort of a um, developmental window during adolescence when there's a lot going on, a lot of the kind of the brain functions that help you with regulating your emotions, planning ahead, common line when the kids are in adolescence. So it's almost if you want to, think about windows of opportunity, there's almost a almost second window of opportunity, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's never lost, uh, the brain development is not trenched, and we can't look at the brain development in isolation of what's happening in, in the child's environment and what sort of scaffolding they have, so one thing that um, Camilla and Kids Company are offering for children are the kinds of things that any typical middle-class child has as a birthright. They have a bed, they have meals, they don't have to worry if someone's going to whack them, they've got peace to do their schoolwork. And many of these children um, basically have none of these things. So even if there is a lot of opportunity in terms of the brain is not fixed, um, they could do a lot of uh, sort of new learning or or de-learning the kinds of patterns they've had. I think that needs to be sort of supported so, so we can't just think, okay, well, are these kids fixed or are they not fixed? We have to think about, well, what are the elements around these children mm-hmm. that will support them? In, in, I don't know, even do you want to add anything to that? And of course, I mean, nobody would argue that it's better to get there early. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's complete pure common sense. Mm-hmm the longer the child is sidelined from the society because their environment is so disrupted that they can't go to school and they grow up mm-hmm. thinking that nobody cares for them and so forth. The longer this goes on, the obviously the harder this is, is to recover. Um, but I don't think we can categorically say that it's, it's too, too late. What do you think is the,
2: might be the, the effect then on a generation of younger children of austerity? Welfare reform. I mean some of the things that I report on regularly in the Guardian which are to do with children who go to school without breakfast um, and uh, Parents who don't uh, you know who run out of money and have to go to the food bank in the third week of the month and this kind of very basic level of of poverty which seems to me quite a simple intervention.
3: Yeah, I, I mean I Couldn't agree with you more. I have very little sympathy with the government government and their approaches I think it's just unacceptable that there are children who don't have food security, uh, whose parents don't have security of providing food for their children. And I think you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that the impact is not going to be good. Hmm. And I think that the, the, the impact is already being felt at the street level.
2: Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask for questions from the floor. Um, lots of questions, good. Um, there's a lady at the right at the back there. If you could um, tell us uh, who you are when you ask the question.
5: Hi, um, I'm Florence, ex-client, but now works at Kids' Company. Um, I just kind of wanted to ask, a lot of our kids um, get expelled from school, but they are at school for a number of years. So what advice can you give to kind of teachers, Youth workers who don't get the kind of same training that kids' company staff get in order to try and deal with these kids and make sure they stay in school and stay in education.
2: Well, Matt, would you say that um, you know, you, the police officers are, are adequately trained in this respect?
4: We have, uh, I mean, one of, I think one of the, the best things we do have is police officers in, in our schools, and, um, and they tend to be people who are very good. At uh, interacting with young people they want to be there it's not a place to be where um, where you don't want to be it's also a place I think where we need our best police officers as well because they can intervene we do lots of restorative justice type uh, work in our schools um, and I, I, I absolutely I think th- those are the police officers who get it and um, their training and, and their development when they're in that school environment will assist them to do that in fact, I've, you know, when I first went to Lambeth a couple of years ago, uh, one of the first things I did was have to say goodbye to one of my schools officers who was being promoted. And, and quite often, when we get promoted, we move around to different places, which is, is always um, causes uh, the people they then leave in their roles um, huge amounts of angst. And he'd been a schools officer for seven years in one of the borough schools, and was loved dearly and that is absolutely the right word to use by the staff and the pupils there and had made a huge difference over the course of his lifetime in that school in raising the standards working with the, the, the children and the young people there and, and he had made a real difference in people's lives during his time there and I think that's why it's really important that not only do we keep our kids in schools but we are there as well to work alongside the, the school staff because I, yes, I I really think it's a great investment.
2: Chara, do you think there is an issue with perhaps teachers and social workers being stuck in a certain way of doing things and and maybe not responding to to the needs of these children? Yeah,
5: I, th- I think um, the lady, what was your name? Sorry again, Florence. Florence touched on a really important point that something and there's a wider. Point around um, this with regard to teacher training and you know all public sector workers you know social workers even police around um, this subject but also if you link in as I would young carers and children with special educational needs as well as children who are suffering from neglect and maltreatment is that the understanding of that whole cohort and being able to identify those children and see them not just as naughty children you know you get children who've got SEN get the label naughty children who are young carers and they're late because they've had to you know prepare food for their mum before they've left to take their younger children to school they're late they haven't done their homework naughty child and children who are suffering from (coughs) neglect and maltreatment you know they haven't got their PE kit they haven't got this you know they're Showing all the outward signs of of what's happening to them in their life, I think that we need better understanding. So that has to—it's not that teachers are sort of being inhuman and callous. You know, if they haven't lived this life or come across these children, you know, they're they're just going to think that you know the children are being naughty. But so they need to. In their teacher training I think a lot of this has to be addressed and a lot of the signs and symptoms that how children act out and what's happening to them in their life so that the teachers can be more understanding and and can also sometimes some of these children are totally under the radar another investigation I did on the when I was on the select committee years ago was children under the radar and understanding that young carers are so skilled at not being identified because they're frightened that they'll be taken into care because their mum said or their whoever they're looking after you know don't tell anybody because you'll be you know you'll be taken into care and then what will happen to me you know if they realize what you're having to do I'll be left on my own so the children don't tell anyone we need Professionals to better spot this and I think we need mandatory um, duties actually we you know we try to do that on the children 's Fa- families bill and we hope we 're going to revisit it in the Lords but teacher training I think is where a lot of this should start um, and if I c- if I can just expand upon that around the awareness to another sort of quite radical idea i 've got that I think this should be on the curriculum I think you know the brain development should be on the curriculum from nursery through to GCSEs because our first learning about this when I was in my late 30s, early 40s, when I first became an MP. It was the first time I realized about the effect of of the brain of neglect and maltreatment. It would be a fascinating subject. You could have it there from the nursery class with the toddlers, you know, when the baby cries, oh, go and pick the baby up, don't let the baby cry, Oh, talk like this to the baby, right the way through to early science lessons with the pictures of the brain, and then right through to, you know, real deep, you know, in-depth science, it it, it should be there, interspersed right throughout the curriculum, and I keep talking about this, and I get a lot of people who agree with me, but we just need to sort of, you know, make it happen.
7: Thank you. Um, I'm Susan Wolf, and I'd I'd like to say two things, please. Uh, My heart just jumped out of my chest when you said about middle-class kids having all this safety. As a middle-class survivor of very yep. severe child abuse. Please yep. do not. Yep. No, no, no. I was more, I was more generally. Yeah, I wasn't trying to say they're not going on
3: in other societal classes. And in fact, I mentioned that they are more than likely going in every strata of society. I was more making the point about people who don't have to deal with poverty, not having to worry about. Getting meals, having a bed, and so forth. But yeah. I absolutely tra- 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 acknowledge what you're saying. I was dragged out of bed yeah. by
7: my hair in the middle of the night many, yeah. many times from a sound sleep yeah. and beaten completely, up. So completely there safety that. isn't necessarily. Yeah. There yeah. I completely nice house. acknowledge that. Yeah. middle-class families have different coping skills for hiding it. Yeah, but it's but yeah. it's there. So, and <laughs> yeah. It was hard for me to. But and the other is that I'm also recovering from. Um, surgery to remove a brain tumor, which may or may not. I believe that the location of the tumor was just a bit too coincidental with the part of my head that my dad's fist Mm -hmm. fell upon. But um, the brain wants to recover. The brain wants to heal itself. It has a slower time healing itself because it is the only organ in the body responsible for giving itself instructions how to do it but but it does all through life and given the right support that's why it's so essential mm-hmm. and they're doing studies now on with with football injuries sports injuries for kids but they're not studying the impact of you know family violence and bullying kinds of injuries that doesn't come into it yet but I mm-hmm. hope uh, that that's
3: not true we've just published uh, four studies in the past two years on the impact Cause of, of cause uh, I, the
7: chronic family um, violence
3: on th- brain th- development. Oh,
7: good. The, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that they're focusing on now, I wrote to the woman in, in Boston, the doctor in Boston who's leading that study, and asked her if they were including um, other than sports injuries, you know, family violence injuries, and she said, no, mm-hmm. not at this time. Okay. So that may be there, but it's just, it's, it's such important work, and thank you all for, d- for what you're doing. No, thank you.
2: Sit down at the side there, please. As a Lambeth
8: resident someone who lives in a council flat and was born in Lambeth, um, I'm getting rid of this is the second round table. People talk about a lost generation of children. As far as I'm aware, there's a lost generation of adults mm-hmm. who are only interested in protecting their wage. And this
6: is the model that Camilla presents, which is a challenge to people up there who get
8: paid wages, well, wait, sorry, insurance. we're
2: we're talking about what teachers, social workers.
8: Yeah, I want to expand yeah. the debate. I want to expand the debate. We're talking about the violent area, social well, violent areas. And uh, so far, this is the second table of people who, who get very well paid, and all I hear is grandstanding, platitudes, uh, and Camilla's model presents a challenge to that. And this is not being really
2: debated. Well, I think we touched on this when, with the question of, you know, are are, are so teachers and social workers sufficiently <coughs> skilled to tackle?
8: It's, it's a phrase of
2: the audit culture, the lawyer culture brought in Well, let, well let, let, let's... Pat, you're a public servant. Uh, but do you think that actually this is so much of a challenge to the way public service professionals do their job that they will automatically not be receptive to this, these kind of insights? Uh,
4: firstly, I think it's a challenge to the community. I really do. I, I know, and, and I thought about it earlier when I first came in, that um, I know that... that from the community members that I deal with on a regular basis, they would be really upset to think that Lambeth is being, because they always are, Lambeth is being typecast as a place where everyone's violent, everyone's in a gang, there's lots of of violence on the street, because there is a real minority of of the totality. And and I I think that's really important to remember, and I think you're right in that respect. I also agree, and I get where you're coming from, around it being a a problem with adults, because... Um, I see people really struggling to come to terms with what's going on around them at the most serious end of the criminality, Um, and I'm not sure that they are assisted to be aware of that, know how to deal with it, know what needs to be done with it, because I know this sounds a bit, bit garbled, but I, I totally get where you're coming from around that. People, people really don't know how to quantify what the problem is in their particular area, and then what to do about it. So there is an awful lot of um, it's somebody else's problem to be made to be made right. And I think the trick and the difficult thing is, is probably as hard as getting those young people to actually admit and change what they're doing is to get some of those people who are adults who are there trying desperately to to assist in their community not wanting it to be stigmatised but actually get them to understand what needs to be done as well and perhaps change what they're saying and doing as well.
8: Oh, this is the word we have for this and then go.
2: Oh, well, well, Sharon can I, can I bring you in here because I don't think outside agents is necessarily the most helpful phrase but but Sharon your observations on this.
5: Um, I hear what he says, but I think that's one of the things is we need to challenge people to live in the communities that they um, they work in. Um, it always frustrates me when I go into schools and I talk to the you know the head teachers and the teachers, and I find that they all live in the you know. The, the nicer leafy areas and the drive out and go home and, and I just think, why don't you live around here and I know every, you know you can't always move with, with every job but also the chief ex- not once have I ever met a chief executive of the council that lives in the council area I might be wrong if, if it happens here but everyone I've worked with so far they you know they live in you know, everybody's sort of And that's just an important part. I I live where, you know, in my constituency, it's so important to live in the area you seek to represent or represent the people, i.e. as you work with. Because then you understand, you're not talking about, oh, well, you know, the problem's there or here. You you live in it, you understand. Um, Most politicians do try to to live in the area and it is so important It didn't always used to it used to be a major issue you know we're visiting politicians who grace their constituency once every six months and expect the red carpet treatment that doesn't happen now but it still quite often happens with some of our especially senior um, public sector workers and I think we should we should challenge that it, you know it's hard we can't all buy and sell houses every two minutes and move every time you move with your job but I think you know you, you get what I'm Sort of trying to see. No, could
2: could I could, uh, hang, on. hang on one, one second? Please. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's Matt, about excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. access and it's participate in the changes. And mm-hmm. that's the model
8: that Camille proposing. If mm-hmm. the children
2: come in, they self refer and
8: they're allowed access and to participate in their own recovery. Mm-hmm. And this is not offered by institutions to adults and children, mothers,
2: fathers mm. and who live in poor council estates. Okay, okay. can I st- stop you there? Um, Matt Bell's colleague was wanting to intervene uh, there. Can you tell us what...
9: Hi everyone, I'm um, Jack Rollins, I'm a sergeant um, in the Metropolitan Police and um, as I'm a, also a trustee of WAVE that I've just been appointed so I'm very happy with that. I get um, the zero to two, I get early years intervention, I get what kids' company do. I'm A non-academic. I've never sat in a hall like this before, Um, uh, um, uh, uh, um, and but also at the same time, you know, um, the work that Wave have done, I've picked up from a ground level. Um, I'm a a doer. I'm a believer in doing something, believing in what the best practice is, and finding a way of implementing it into my community. And uh, what I would say is that what we need to do as top level thinkers is empower our ground level workers to be innovative and to empower them with best practice so that we can go and set a standard in our wards I I have a small area but my ward is important my community centre is important to me and it doesn't actually matter where we come from whether or not we commute in or whether or not we live in the area but it's our desire to change the area that we live in and being able to do that is about taking the best work and doing it from a ground level perspective. And I think that that's what the key is. It's about talking to the people that are the teachers, are the social workers, like you said, are the youth workers and actually giving them the toolkit to implement what we all talk about and what we all mean. So um, that's the point I'd like to make. Thank you. Any more questions?
2: Yes, plenty. Uh, lady in the purple top just here
6: my name is Florence Sutherland Um, I'm a director of an independent fostering agency and work with looked after children and foster carers who we support and train my question is you're talking about training teachers and expanding their knowledge base. What I would like to know is, how are they going to be able to implement what they learn when their caseloads continue to grow almost on a daily basis? (laughs) And also, how we as human beings we do know the language of love if we have been brought up in a good enough family but there is a move toward um, fine tuning or changing that language of love i have met a lot of teachers that are very, very dissatisfied that they can't pick up a child that is crying because they'll be accused of all sorts of things, Uh, the comfort, the touch, the love, that basic human need that a child that is away from home needs is not being met in school or in nursery school because of the risk-averse practice that is going on. I just would like to know how
2: well, Sharon, there are t- t- two things there.
8: Uh-huh. Um, one,
2: I think, leads back to the previous question about, uh, about professional culture. There is that issue of, um, of budgets that yeah. are shrinking all the time. Demand is going up. And then there's this parallel issue yeah. of, of culture, really, yeah. this risk-averse culture.
5: Yeah. A really good question both both questions the, the first part about you know overworked staff teachers health visitors social workers i think the caseloads that i'm beginning to hear that you know especially in london that some health visitors and social workers have is absolutely unacceptable and the um, what they end up doing all the time is spent on safeguarding so there's no work at all been done on the, the the prevention or any early intervention it's all sort of last-minute safeguarding stuff now I was talking to the um, my equivalent who's actually in government in Wales because we've got a, um, the Welsh Assembly and its labor are in control so he's the the, the children and families um, minister in Wales and he was telling me how um, his health visitors their caseloads 110 and My mouth dropped. I went, wow, because, you know, I've heard on average, and you can tell me any um, health visitors or social workers here, on average, it's about 250 to 300, getting up to 400 now in London. So in parts of the country, some people have got 250. Now, um, how, how can they be, you know, Everybody hears about these cases, you know, the, the poor little Daniel Pelker and that little boy, um, Karn, who's uh, the case is in the, the news now. And you think, How aren't these getting picked up? Well, if you've got, you know, a health visitor with a caseload of 400 and a, a social worker with an equ- equivalently ridiculously high caseload, they are, they are just dealing with the, the safeguarding, the emergency things there and now, and all of these other... Um, Cases down, down the, the, the way are just, they haven't got time to deal with it. One of the best interventions in Graham Allen's um, report, you know, his early intervention report, when I asked him what, you know, what's the best one, all the ones you've seen and evaluated, and he said the best one were family nurse partnerships. So I went out on um, a day to shadow a family nurse and the work she did, and the first thing I asked her was, I said, oh gosh, when we went to our first visit and we were there about an hour and a half. I said, says, wow, what's your case load? She says, 25, 20 to 25. She used to be a health visitor. And I said, how much did it used to be when you were a health visitor? She's 200 to 250. I said, you know, how, how, what's the difference? And she said, well, obviously time. She says, when I was a health visitor, she says, there would be some people I'd think, oh, I should go and see her again, but I've got to go and see this one, this one. I'll try and fit her in tomorrow. She says, and some that would go to, to weeks where, you know, she wanted to see them, but, you know, the nurse, the doctor goes to the sick, doesn't it? So it comes down to time. Now, again, to get political, David Cameron promised us 4,200 extra health visitors, and we all cheered, and that would be great. You know how many we've got? 600. We need those 4,200. We desperately, and we equally need more social workers. So it's, you know, it's a very valid point you raised.
2: We've uh, we've got about five minutes to go, so if I take gentleman then, white t-shirt, Um,
10: Pete Saunders from the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. This is one for you, Patrick, actually. Um, And addressing the colleague further along who talked about sort of risk aversion and how how sadly people are not allowed to pick children up anymore and give them a cuddle when they fall over. What a a crazy situation. Um, I suspect I am one of probably dozens of people in this room uh, who were abused as a child. Um, And there was an article in your newspaper last week, sanctioned by the NSPCC, I'm told, which said that if you have been abused as a child, you are likely, these these were the words of the Guardian, you are likely to become an abuser and some figures were mentioned. I would like to know, because I've had no response since my last email to the Guardian, how that dangerous, dangerous, distressing and offensive piece, um, how the Guardian might go about um, retracting that, if that's the right word, or making an apology to the millions and millions of people in this country who suffered abuse. And I have personally spoken in my capacity at NAPAC to thousands of survivors over the last 17 or 18 years, and I have yet to meet anybody who would not die before they would pass on or see a child hurt.
2: Well, very quickly. this point I, I'm not sure of the article that you're referring to and uh, so do, will come to me afterwards, just one little point NSPCC doesn't sanction anything in the Guardian, no one sanctions anything in the Guardian, they may have been quoted but let's talk afterwards next question uh, lady in front here
0: Hi, uh, Francis Peebles happily retired from so mainstream social work um, but continuing to do independent social work um, in, in numerous forms and my last job was um, in child and adolescent mental health particularly with looked after children um, I would love to hear some hopeful um, thoughts about uh, what, what is ha- going to ha- what is happening, what is going to happen given that children who are looked after are broken children very often which touches me a bit um, And uh, and given that they have attachment issues, um, and as Camilla has stated um, in uh, several places several times that these children are so broken, they they seek out attachment figures, which are often from gangs. And uh, I just wonder, is there there any hope for these kids?
2: I think that's a really good question to end on, actually. (laughs) We can ask the panel. Matt, what, your, 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 what would be your hopeful thoughts around that session?
4: Yeah, I, I think there is always hope. I absolutely believe that. Um, and I see enough work going on around me to, to believe that you know, we see some fantastically positive outcomes. We don't necessarily uh, publicise that. And I know you had a speaker this morning I missed who has who, who you know, been through and whose life has changed positively through, through Kids Company. There are many, many, many um, private public sector partnership-run organisations who are making a a huge impact on children's lives, from the feeding them in the morning to make sure they're not hungry in school, right the way through to school kicking out. I know know some fantastic examples um, that I've seen of schools where teachers do go absolutely over and above and beyond their their duty. They're outside the schools when, when the children are leaving every day They are are fantastic role models for their children. I've seen schools that have been turned around from really failing schools into into, hugely successful schools. And and one in my previous borough up in Dagenham, um, John Clack School. I don't know whether anybody knows it, but turned from a really bad drug gang infested school through the, the work of Paul Grant who's the head there and has been the head there for 20 years and I think there's a bit of a message there around consistency of approach into a place where people are moving into the area to make sure their kids go there uh, and you know so I think that there are some fantastic examples we shouldn't forget them you're absolutely right we need, to, we need to be really positive about some of the great work that's going on out there and the real successes but I think you know we need to temper that with, with the we've got to stop the churn we've got to do something to prevent it, it feeding through and just becoming tomorrow's reality.
2: Um, Charlotte, uh, you've been sitting. Uh, uh, um, I'm going to come to yes. oh, okay. um, um, Charlotte, you, you, just to finish up, you've been sitting here patiently, um, but you've done this amazing research. Mm. What did you, are you hopeful?
1: Absolutely, I've had the chance throughout this research to meet many, many youth from accessing services from Kids' Company. And I think that was an incredibly hopeful experience in the sense that all of these young people were very open about their experiences but also about how this um, organization is really helping them to turn their lives around and giving them the support and the care and the love that they really, really need. So most of the, all of these young people really they want They want to achieve, they want to do well, but they need that, that extra help, you know, to, to do that, and I think that absolutely there
5: is, there is hope.
2: Yeah. Um, Sharon, any hope on the horizon? And don't say a Labour government in 2015.
5: <laughs> well, of course, I would say that, but you've said it already for me, so that's good. Um, uh, the, we've got to have hope, and yeah, that is, um, you know, the, the, the biggest hope, because um, the phrase I wrote down that I'll, I'll use and I'll never forget is you said broken children seek attachment from dangerous sources and that is just you know it, you know really strong I think but um, one of the two things I want to see um, is the the figures behind early intervention and how it works for every pound inven- invested um, towards the prevention of abuse and neglect Uh, you get a return of £1.37 at least and up to £9.20 for every pound. Now, if that doesn't just, you know, make the argument, um, I I don't know what does. We know it's the right thing to do. You need political will. I know everybody says, oh, it isn't just about money. Well, a large part of it is about money. And I can't make manifesto commitments. I'd get absolutely um, murdered by Ed Balls. But, um, you know, we have this week. We did make some. And if I can just, as by way of sort of, um, look at what we did as an indicator to what we would do i 'll end on one two other figures i know you 're all academic, so you love figures um, in 1997-98 to 98, the spending on early years education, childcare and sure start was £671 per child. By the time we left office in 2009-10 the spending on early years education, childcare and sure start was £2,514 per child. That was an early fivefold increase. So if you want to know that what we put our money where our mouth is, that's what we did and hopefully that will be an indicator of what we would do. Thank you. There's a lot of cross-party work on this through um, the 1001 Critical Days, the New World Party group with Andrea Leadsom. Andrea Leadsom is honestly an absolute star in this um, field and she fights the corner all the time for, for this early intervention prevention work um, in the, the government. So, but you know, she's only you know, she's one, one woman. Uh, you know, she needs more on her side to believe in this work.
2: Essie Ridding, um, is there hope?
6: I
3: I think children are incredibly resilient. There are constantly stories of of children chasing their life around and children uh, coming through in ways that you wouldn't expect. And I think um, having heard from two people in the audience who are survivors of the abuse and who are here today and who have been organizing helping other people who have been abused, I think just shows how resilient human beings are, that despite these sorts of experiences, they can go on to turn their lives around and help other people.
2: I'm afraid we're going to have to finish there it's now time for a coffee break Um, and uh, I know you've all clapped the panel already but if you could show your appreciation once more thank you